So you're about to die. You're allowed some final words. 42 words, to be precise. Your final act. Your final expression of agency. What do you say? Perhaps you would list the 42 words which, according to the Chorus app, rhyme with loathsomeness. Hopelessness, socialists, chauvinists, foaminess, post-mistress, and so on. You might drop a few shout-outs to friends and family. Hold tight, Nan-Nan. Big up, Sasha in HR and the whole Huntingdon payroll crew. Maybe you'd make some last confession or a declaration of love. You could recite just over a third, on average, of a sonnet. Upon the earth's increase, why shouldst thou feed? Unless the earth with thy increase be fed. By law of nature thou art bound to breed, that thine may live when thou thyself art dead. And so, in spite of death, thou dost survive, in that thy likeness still is left alive. That's too long. You wouldn't be able to do that. It's 51 words, so you could get to, and so in spite of death thou, before, with poignant irony croaking, just as you were about to say, dust, survive. <sighs> you might even, with the clarity that supposedly comes in extremists, try to formulate some piece of wisdom, some encapsulation of all that you've learned, that you could hand back from the edge of the abyss to those yet to follow you. What you couldn't do is say the introduction to this podcast. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name is Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. That's the core of the canonical introduction. Of course, there are some additional uh, texts and things that come after it, and it's 92 words already, even without me saying to that end. We often have guests on the show to talk about their work, their, their books and their writing, or we might have people from the publishing industry. Sometimes listeners send in examples of their work and I give some feedback on how to make it a little less bad and sometimes I just talk freestyle into the microphone about whatever's on my mind that 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 just 92 for core without expansions um fortunately that introduction is not something I plan to say when I die uh, that would be well it would be it would show a weird commitment to the bit and to podcasting if I die I mean I say if implying there's some uncertainty about whether I'm immortal. When I die, ideally, I I, I should like uh, to do so falling from the basket of a hot air balloon or similar, so I can yell, we're blasting off again! Like Team Rocket do in Pokemon every time they're thwarted. Well, most times they're thwarted, actually. See, this is... <laughs> that's the kind of joke that it's difficult to make if you're autistic and you care about Pokemon, uh, because you start thinking, actually, there are whole seasons where they they don't always say we're blasting off. Like, it, this not, is not going to be a, a big issue for you if you don't watch Pokemon, but I think, like, on the Alolan season, they didn't say we're blasting off again. In the Japanese version, in the original Japanese version, Team Rocket don't say we're blasting off again when they get sort of whacked with, pre usually something like, 
Pikachu doing Thunderbolt or Iron t- Iron Tail, and they'll fly off, and then there'll be a little ping as they disappear. Um, but they 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 in in Japanese, I can't remember the original Japanese, but they say something that translates roughly as "This feels bad." Um, in any case, yeah, I guess they didn't really blast off again in the Alolan season because uh, uh, beware the uh, the the big bear Pokemon would just sort of grab them under his arm and and run off with them. Um, yeah, sorry, I got sidetracked. <laughs> and that's why I I would I mean I can really really see my dying words me sort of going into a series of parenthetical statements about sort of Donkey Kong deep lore, or and and, and I'm not even that much of an expert on ver- the canonicity of various things. I don't know that much about Pokemon. I just care about it in in a way that's frustrating. Anyway, look, today is not about me. Uh, this is a writing. This is a writing podcast. It's not. None of that was especially relevant. Today is about writing and death and restrictions. Welcome. If you're a new listener, you've probably got a terrifyingly accurate and honest sense of what this podcast is like and the likely tone. But it is a podcast for people who write and read and care about it. At the end of the show, I'll talk about ways you can help the podcast, but more pertinently for you probably a little bit more of a way of sweetening the pot is um how you can join our writing community discord there's a death of a thousand cuts discord where you know if you'd like somewhere to chat with other writers and read their work ask questions talk about the show and maybe share your own writing it exists it's there and it's growing every day and it's really really lovely and it's um i'm pleasantly surprised at how many people have taken it up and just how chill and cool everyone who's involved seems to be. So I've been watching a lot of movies recently, a lot of them bad to middling, but one I watched for the first time, having only picked at bits of it in the past, was Blade Runner, which is, in case you don't know, this cyberpunk movie that came out in 1982 and famously had some studio interference where they wanted the ending changed and they wanted different things and different cuts were released afterwards, various versions. Um, It was directed by Ridley Scott and there's, I think there's like seven different versions, maybe three main ones that were commercially released. And it's like this genre-defining movie in terms of aesthetics. It didn't do particularly well when it came out, but it was one of those cult movies that continued to have people talking about how much they liked it. A little bit like the the joke about the Velvet Underground, you know, that only 200 people bought their album, but all of those people went on to start a band. I feel like Blade Runner was one of those movies that people were... that a lot of people who were into science fiction just, just interfaced with, just, like, dunked their head into it and went mainline me this um the foundational text of cyberpunk is generally considered to be william gibson's neuromancer um that came out in 1984 so whereas blade runner itself was ripping riffing off um philip k dick's short story do androids dream of electric sheep although i should say the relationship between licensed movies made from dick's work and the original text is often suggestive at best, as Twitter user Stu 
put it, quote, Philip K. Dick movies all have names like Cortical Impasse and are based on short stories called, like, Let's See What's Going On Down at the Brain Factory, end quote. I think that's absolutely true, and uh, there's a bunch of... Minority Report, the movie is completely different to the short story. They, You know, they, they take the basic concept of precogs and the concept of pre-crime and then nothing else is the same at all um also the aesthetics of katsuhiro otomo's akira were very influential on the genre though the anime didn't come out for another six years but the manga started in 1982 and it is very good it is better than the film in my humble opinion i interviewed katsuhiro otomo when steam boy came out um i think his short film cannon fodder is amazing it might be one of my favorite examples of something that i suppose we might consider fantasy uh, i know very little about manga and anime despite having read both professionally and reviewed them but you really ought to read the original six volumes of akira if you at all care about science fiction even though its politics are I think, at best, deeply questionable. Uh, Steam Boy, on the other hand, is an explicitly pacifist story, so I'm not asserting anything about the author. I just think sometimes stories... They have ideologies that, that kind of leak out of them, and I think Akira's one is just... You know, people who in charge of democracy don't come out, very, don't come out of it very well. Uh, and, you know, like with all these stories where there's you know, one or two heroes who are going out and making things happen. They're essentially operating outside the law. And part of me always goes, <laughs> you know, of course we can show corrupt democracies and democracy not doing very democracy not doing very well. But just in the with with the backdrop of Japanese history and the way the story is kind of about cultural decay and these kind of brazen youths rising up and seizing power violently and Japan having to defend itself against hostile foreign forces who want to carve it up. You know, part of me is like, no, I'm not sure how I feel about this, but it's great. But it's a, it's a, it's a wicked, uh, it's a wicked series of comics. And uh, as always, we do not have to read our literature for the moral instruction so much as to make us think and feel. But I digress, as is my want. Today's episode is not actually specifically about cyberpunk or steampunk or science fiction at all. Um, so if you don't write in any of those areas and you don't read them and you don't really care about them, I do urge you to listen. I don't want to paint myself as too desperate a character. Please, please don't leave. I'll stay the, say the opposite if you stay. I'm not saying that. Although I do think it's really, really good to listen to people talk about different genres to your own. Like, I learn a lot when I listen to someone talk about crime or detective fiction or romance, because one, crime detection and romance can happen in any genre. Uh, you know, they should be able to anyway, that they can, they don't, they're not just genres in themselves, they're also part of human life. Uh, but also, cross training is one of the big it's like a force multiplier for your writing it really is it can boost you forward by giving you access to these other 
resources and thoughts and ideas and way at looking ways of looking at a text i really 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 recommend it um of course if you do like the genre then it's gonna this episode is gonna be super relevant but it's not about genre it's about dialogue and editing and what we're trying to do when a character speaks and i think a death monologue a death soliloquy as we sometimes call it though properly the latter implies the character is alone and we're being given an artistic representation of their thoughts you know the great soliloquies that we see on stage the character what what we're getting is an insight into the character's thoughts but uh, because actors are not yet able to beam what they're thinking directly into our heads they have to say it out loud so there's a little bit of artistic license but you know the 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 death monologue is is quite a useful distillation of how speech might reveal or develop a character and and, and this is something that is true you know that is relevant to all stories so that's why i want to talk about it because it's a character's last act when they die and they decide to say something and because of that it traditionally carries a disproportionate volume of thematic freight we mostly accept this slightly unbelievable convention of characters receiving a mortal wound knowing they're dying then gasping out a final testament before their eyes roll back and they twitch and go still not because it's in any way plausible it's not but because it's dramatically useful in the great ecosystem of stories there's a selection pressure for things that reveal character that are emotionally resonant and that drive the story forward and the death soliloquy has survived hundreds and thousands of years of storytelling because it's useful and that's why it's still here and and the reason i was obsessing over 42 words before the intro back there is because it's the length of a famous death monologue in blade runner now if you've never seen the film and you want to keep yourself pure clearly at this point in the podcast we're going to have to part ways maybe you can come back if you want to go and watch it quickly stream it or download it from somewhere um because major spoilers follow for said movie i if you want to go and watch it you can do by all means um i watched it knowing pretty much everything that was going to happen um just because of its ginormous cultural footprint that has more or less permeated everything vaguely grimy corporate sf futury that has followed uh, so without n- having seen the movie i knew most of it it's like casablanca in that sense you it's like the old lady who went to see shakespeare and then came out and complained that it was just all made up of quotes like even if you haven't seen the movie if you sit down and watch it a bunch of stuff will feel eerily familiar and that's because it's spread like buckshot through lots and lots of different media but heads up i'm about to go into talking about the movie okay so um in Blade Runner, there are people called replicants who are basically artificially created life forms, humanoid life forms used as slaves. And though physically they can pass as humans, they've had this failsafe built into them that means they only live for four years, which is an un- just straight off the bat is an unconvincing bit of world building that you'd have these super expensive high tech workers then make them obsolescent really quickly 
I'm pretty sure it would be far, far more economically viable just to prey on the marginalised and desperate. Don't, I mean, don't. I'm not. I don't want to sound like a supervillain. I'm just saying we already. This is a this is a problem that never needed solving, especially if you're talking about completely amoral corporations, right? Like this is not necessary. Um, but as is true of a lot of near future speculative fiction involving robots or clones, often the implicit theme is. What if white people, or possibly middle-class people, were treated the way people of colour or working-class people are currently treated? Gasp! This person is being exploited, but also they have little mel melanin and they play classical piano. What a dark, poignant, grown-up take on the future. Readers weeping because they can empathise with the well-spoken droid in a way they can't with actual living non-fictional migrant workers in the United Arab Emirates or Ch China. Golf clap. Well done, art. I mean, look, seriously, that, that thump you heard in the background was my temporarily dismounting my high horse and stepping down from my soapbox. My political slash ideological beefs with the genre. Or, or maybe it would be fairer to say my mild misgivings and queasiness around some of its elements that may or may not be problematic. I just don't want to... I don't want to come off as too sort of squeamish, continually <laughs> scanning every text or movie I read with my sort of like infrared light to see any kind of blemish on it that might make it morally impure. That's not what I'm saying. But I just do feel there's something in how the world's presented that I don't think that's interesting to problematise, if nothing else. Anyway, look, uh, it, it, it's neither here nor there for our purposes today. Anyway, one of these sh said short-lived replicants gets hunted down by a sort of replicant bounty hunter played by Harrison Ford called Deckard. And Deckard has already shot and killed the other replicants that had escaped. And um, he he's hunting down this final one and they both end up on this rain-hammered roof in the grimy, dark city. Cyberpunk, in many important ways, is just a reimagining of noir, with uh, the same anxieties about urban moral decay and immigration imported wholesale. The Chinese laundries backing onto opium dens switched out for neon-lit noodle bars and drugs with names like Nuke, Slug and Slow-Mo. Never crack, though. In the gritty near future, everybody's completely off the crack. Good job, team. So they have this cat and mouse hide-and-seek chase through an old house, and Deckard ultimately finds himself dangling from a rain-slick girder with two fingers broken, and story upon story of empty air between him and the unforgiving street below. And then the replicant decides, surprisingly, to save him, to pull him up, to save him from falling and dying. I say the the replicant, uh, his name is Roy Batty, which is hilarious on at least three levels. Roy Batty doesn't sound like a near-future artificial being. It sounds like a name you see on the side of a white van for a guy who sheetrocks garage roofs. Roy 
Batty, they might as well have called him Jeff Bottom. Roy Batty is played by Rutger Hauer, who throughout the movie is chewing the scenery, I think sometimes literally, in a very sort of manic Nick Cage-esque performance. And I don't mean that as a dig. He's very watchable throughout. And you genuinely feel like you don't know what Roy Batty is going to do moment to moment. I mean, I'm not even sure if Ridley Scott or Rutger Hauer himself knew, to be honest. I get the impression that uh, Hauer's methodology may have been not unakin to that of Mr. T, of whom Sylvester Stallone said, quote, you don't really direct Mr. T, you just unleash him, end quote. And that's just how some performers thrive, right? Like, I pity the fool was an ad lib in Rocky Three. So anyway, Deckard and Batty are sitting on this r- roof in the rain, exhausted, both wounded in the hand. And, and Batty's time, he realises, is up. His four years before his biological failsafe kills him are about to expire right now. In fact, he's kept himself going a tiny bit longer by driving a nail he pulled up from the floor through his palm, presumably to give him this kind of shock of adrenaline that's going to keep him going. The symbolic significance of, you know, being pierced through the palm with a nail, I'm sure you can discern. And, And sitting there on the roof, Roy Batty says, well, in the earliest draft that we know about, he said nothing. A Deckard shot and killed him. Because only one of them has got a gun in this scene. It's not quite clear, like... Deckard is quite crap <laughs> hunting down Roy Batty. Immediately, he loses his he loses his gun and then he gets given it back. And it's it's a very sort of odd. It's a very odd dynamic. But he 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 loses his gun. But in the original version, he managed to shoot Roy Batty, and Roy Batty just slumped and died. Clearly, that didn't sit right with the writer, so it got rewritten. Here's what Roy Batty said in a draft. After that, I've known adventures, seen places you people will never see. I've been off world and back, frontiers. I've stood on the back deck of a blinker bound for the Plutician camps, with sweat in my eyes, watching stars fight on the shoulder of Orion. I've felt wind in my hair, riding test boats off the black galaxies and seen an attack fleet burn like a match and disappear. I've seen it, felt it. The screenwriter, by the way, was was David Peoples, who also wrote Miserablist, Time Travel, Plague Opera, Twelve Monkeys. So you've got to imagine uh, uh, Batty is is sitting on this roof, uh, rain pouring down, bleeding out an arm. He's about to die, and he, he says this. Let's just read that again, if you will. Indulge me a moment. I've known adventures, seen places you people will never see. I've been off world and back, frontiers. I've stood on the back deck of a blinker bound for the Plutician camps, with sweat in my eyes, watching stars fight on the shoulder of Orion. I felt wind in my hair, riding test boats off the black galaxies, and seen an attack fleet burn like a match and disappear. I've seen it, felt it. So that's 72 words. I don't know how did how did how did you feel about that? Uh, look, I'm not an actor, so m- my read is going to be necessarily uh, lacking a certain something. But um, 
Well, by the time they reached the final shooting script, the monologue had shortened to this. I've seen things. Seen things you little people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion, bright as magnesium. I rode on the back decks of a blinker and watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments. They'll be gone. So that's now 48 words. It's around two-thirds of the length of the early draft. How, how Do you have any thoughts about how it compares? I, I like that we, we lose that weird exclamation. Frontiers! Which seems a little bit on the nose. Yes, yes, you're talking about frontiers. It kind of punctuates that. And I like that the big middle sentence is shortened. Originally we had, I've stood on the back deck of a blinker bound for the Plutician camps with sweat in my eyes, watching stars fight on the shoulder of Orion. And now it's, I rode on the back decks of a blinker and and watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate which is is better, right? The first one is like, both of those I find quite difficult to say, but the first one, I've stood on the back deck of a blinker bound for the Plutician camps with sweat in my eyes, watching stars fight on the shoulder of Orion. That's a real mouthful. Plutician camps is such a clunky phrase. Uh, Plutician, Plutician, I don't even, I think I'm pronouncing that right. I, I don't think anyone more mourns the the cut of plutician camps i have to say i'm not sure i like attack ships on fire off the shoulder of orion bright as magnesium as much as i do that description of seeing an attack fleet burn like a match and disappear that's such a clean image to me an attack fleet burn like a match and disappear like that i that i can see that uh, maybe they worried that matches don't exist anymore, so they just t- turned to magnesium, which I-, I guess you have in flares, and you might, I don't know if you use, do you use it in welding? I don't know. But magnesium maybe sounded more like it like it fitted the genre a bit better. And that's very bright as well. That's really the, the that's, a, that's a white flare. But it's somehow less evocative, I think. It's odd how I rode on the back decks of a blinker doesn't really mean anything to me in either draft. I, I don't know what a blinker is. I can't picture it. Far from, like, caring... If it said I rode on the decks of a blinker, fine. Why do I care I rode on the back decks of a blinker? I mean, that's back decks of a blinker. It's so hard to say. But to, to specifying that it's the backs, does that mean anything to me? Like, may so so just thinking like maybe a blinker is a ship that can you know blink between locations using some kind of hyperdrive. Given the implied distances space travel now reaches in the Blade Runner universe, and Batty's short lifespan, right, and the fact that his creator is still alive, so he can't have been alive that long, fast. Faster than light. So, uh, uh, well, the fact his creator is still alive means that he can't have been in cryostasis for a long period of time, right? He can't have been, like, put in a fridge, travel somewhere and then be unfrozen, right? So the implication is that faster than light travel feels necessary to make the Netrunner universe work. 
though I don't know, maybe there are jump gates or whatever. Some there's some kind of way of traveling very, very fast in space. Um it also could be a blinker could just be a an orbital ship. Maybe it just has lights on it that blink from a distance. Who knows? But if someone is evoking things they've seen in this speech, those things need to be visual, right? A whole attack fleet flaring like a match and disappearing against the darkness of space. All the lives that must have been lost in that single moment, that's visual, right? And it's death-based. It's it's the thematically anchored in the talk. It's this moment of burning brightly, then vanishing forever, which is what Batty's creator, the CEO of Tyrell Corporation, says earlier is what Batty himself has done with his shortened lifespan. He, he's burnt twice as brightly. On the other hand, I, I get the impulse behind having that allusion to blinkers and the plutician camps. Plutician, by the way, can mean like depleting. So these camps might be, I would guess, like strip mining minerals from asteroids or something like that. They're depletion camps there. They're, they're, they're pulling something away. Um, I suppose maybe it could they could be punishment camps or I don't know, but probably mining. Um, we could infer that, definitely. Uh, and I, I, I get the impulse, even if I don't think it works here. Um, it's what Nate Crowley, I think on the first occasion I chatted with him on this very show, uh, called Chekhov's Gundark. Uh, so Chekhov's Gundark, this is a phrase invented by Nate Crowley, it, it, it is basically a reference to a character, is a, basically a reference a character makes to something outside the story that we never come back to, but that gives the sense of a real lived-in external world, world which contains elements that aren't just there to service the narrative. So the name, uh, forgive me if you understand the references, but just so everyone's on the bus and we're not leaving anyone behind because it's it's kind of a pun. The name comes from referencing Chekhov's gun, the idea that everything in your story should serve the story. The Russian playwright and short story writer Anton Chekhov said this in various ways throughout his life, but uh to give you an example, he once wrote in a letter, quote, one must never place a loaded rifle on the stage if it isn't going to go off. It's wrong to make promises you don't mean to keep, end quote. The Gundark part comes from another scene involving Harrison Ford here in the Star Wars trilogy, where Han Solo says to Luke Skywalker, quote, you look strong enough to pull the ears off a Gundark, end quote. We're not told in those original movies precisely what a Gundark is. We never see one. The expanded universe fleshed all of this out because of course it did. But for the purposes of the original story, a Gundark is just this offhand reference to something that exists outside the scope of the trilogy. It's not setting anything up. It just gives the sense that the characters' lives and their world are not constrained by the immediate needs of the plot. That if you looked beyond the camera the world would continue. And of course that moment does achieve something. So it's not entirely a violation of Chekhov, right? Like we can infer a little about Gundark's from the utterance. It develops character. We get a sense of Han's fondness for what is possibly a, a colourful, popular expression, right? His humour. Also his immediate assessment of how Luke is. We get a sense of how he's feeling, right? I'm not sure people hear that exchange and feel an implicit promise has been made that we're going to get to meet a Gundark or at some point in the story a Gundark is 
going to be used to solve a problem. So I get that these references in Batty's death monologue are meant to push towards a real world beyond the rain-soaked streets Deckard moves through. People have been moving off planet throughout the movie. We see drones or blimps with these dot matrix displays advertising the chance to start a new life off world. Batty has to reference things beyond Deckard's immediate experience, things outside the stage where the film takes place. That's partly the point of what he's saying, that in his short life, he's experienced far more than Deckard has in his shut down, closed off, risk averse one. But they also feel a bit like he's explaining some of these things to the audience. You know, I rode on the back decks of a blinker. I mean, what is the difference between the back and front decks? Does it matter? Maybe the screenwriter thought about this and it mattered to them. But why would you... Why Why now would you say that? Why? Why? why it's a bit like going... It, it, it's just it's just a weird thing to do. It's like... Uh, I... I I re it's like saying I remember Paris and then saying I remember Paris I was on the Rue de Jarry uh, flat 14B we had a little um, you had to go up a little stairwell and there was a trick with the key like uh, I'm sure that all those things are true but there's a point where you're just sort of wittering <laughs> about inconsequential details. And look, wittering about inconsequential details is absolutely my MO. I'm I'm not dissing anyone. And as I've said, I probably will spend my final breaths doing that. But it's not good, good or effective screenwriting. And, and look, I, I realise I may be prejudiced because I'm familiar with the final version. But I do really like Tannhauser Gate as a specific reference it's a proper noun you know we might not get all what he's referencing there but it has a sense of of magnitude you know uh, it feels like he's talking about something either Deckard would would know he would know the reference or it's it might be like it might be the equivalent of saying I watched the sunrise over the South China Sea you know you if someone says that I might might not have hung out I might not have seen a South China Sea sunrise, but I get an image and I understand it's a specific place and it feels real and it feels solid and it feels robust and it makes the world. I know when we there's when he talks about the Tannhauser Gate, I believe that's a thing. In any case, the night before filming this scene, Rutger Hauer decided he didn't like the speech as it stood. So according to him, he, quote, put a knife in it uh, without telling Ridley Scott, then performed it his own way on the day of filming. The final filmed version goes like this. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. Time to die. So there are a bunch of things I like about this final version. He cut bright as magnesium, so we simply get attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. The clause ends there on Orion. You know, I've 
banged on about this in previous shows, this idea of the primary recency effect, that the thing at the end of the sentence and the thing at the beginning are the things we remember most. The stuff in the middle tends to hit less powerfully. So if you can arrange a sentence so the most important word in it lands at the end, I mean, don't make a fetish of it. it I think sometimes you you can't without making it a nonsense but when that is possible do so because it will be more impactful it'll be more emotionally impactful and it'll be more memorable certainly whatever you end a clause on has a stress that's something that you know i take from poetry that wherever you end a clause a line whatever you are putting emphasis on that word whether you intend to or not the shoulder of Orion. And that is the point of what he's saying in that clause. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. You know, he, he was in he was in fucking space. You know, his point isn't so much that they burned bright as magnesium. The ships aren't really the point at all. The point was he was a living being who was uh, I mean, my astronomy is 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 bad to non-existent, but I does he mean these attack ships were I mean, where is the shoulder of Orion? I guess is that like Beetlejuice? Not the I'm talking about the red giant star, not the mischievous ghost depicted by Michael Keaton in the film of the same name. Like I might be totally misunderstanding, and in a way, it doesn't really matter whether I'm right or completely off the point. But if Orion is a constellation and Orion's belt is the middle bit, then Orion, sh- the shoulder of Orion, would be like Beetlejuice, right? Which is nearly 650 light years from Earth. I think 600. 42 something right so so this constellation that ancient humans named after the hunter orion depicted on cave walls roy batty has been there he, he he's been up to that dot in the sky he, he's felt the vastness of space and the war and the destruction that followed humans even there the idea of that bright burning match, you know, that searing brief light that we had in the first draft, I understand why a writer would, would cling to that, would want to to keep that to its thematic resonance. I, I think it's good. It's not like a bad impulse to have had it in to begin with. But um, he who chases two rabbits catches neither. And, and this is the great art of writing, I think, effective prose. It, it's sometimes you have an idea that you can justify, but it's in competition with another idea that is also good. And even if neither is wrong, you have to make a decision to euthanize one of those. And by dropping it, we get to hit that specific proper noun, Orion to pause on it, to throw emotive weight behind it, the exoticness, the mystery of it, the shoulder of Orion. And it sound, that sounds nice. There's a cadence to it. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. Notice how simple the language is there. What's a sea beam? I don't know. But 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 none of the words are uh, unfamiliar, right? But, but I know that I know that the sea beams were glittering. That is, but you know. So what is a what is a sea beam? I guess it could be some kind of. It could be some kind of energy beam, or it could be some kind of structural beam on the gate. But um. We'd, all, what I know is I know that they were glittering. I know they were in the dark. I have the appropriate visual cues that my brain fills something out. I see a kind of blue laser. 
in space. You may see something different. It doesn't matter. Look, because he's seen things. So he engages our visual senses. It gives something that feeds our mind's eye. But look, of all 11 words in this sentence, only two are more than one syllable. Glitter and Tannhauser. That is nice. It doesn't sound dumbed down or, or simplified. It sounds epic. It has a boldness and a power. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser gate. A light has come on on my dashboard, which I think means I'm obliged to quote from Ursula Le Guin. I defer to her in most matters of style. I don't contend that she was a perfect writer, but I think she was about as close as any of us can hope to come. Anyway, I just want to pull a few lines she wrote from a longer, excellent essay in her book, uh, The Language of the Night, Essays on Fantasy and Science Fiction. I, I've recommended this book and I feel like I'm torturing you every time I do because I picked up my copy secondhand. And if you get lucky and you happen across a copy, grab it and cling to it or check if it's in your local library. But just be aware that it's it's not very available and some copies are going for ridiculous amounts of money um in any case you know i i just i, I just think that this applies here and I, well anyway it supports my point in a way that slightly valorizes me by demonstrating i have the support of one of the greats quote most epics are in straightforward language whether prose or verse they retain the directness of their oral forebears Homer's metaphors may be extended, but they are neither static nor ornate. The Song of Roland has 4,000 lines containing one simile and no metaphors. Clarity and simplicity are permanent virtues in a narrative. Nothing highfalutin is needed. A plain language is the noblest of all. It is also the most difficult. End quote. She goes on to praise Tolkien's use of simple language and how flexible it is. But let's return to the end of Batty's monologue. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. Time to die. Fifteen words, only one of which is longer than one syllable. Moments. It's describing pretty complex, abstract, metaphysical concepts. Death, time, impermanence, but it breaks it down into language genuinely comprehensible to a five-year-old. And whatever you think of the monologue overall, you may like it or not, taste is taste. That's not my point here. I don't think you have to be a fan of something to learn from it. You can't say that this monologue sounds childish or dumbed down or oversimplified. Across these four drafts, well, I guess the three drafts where it existed, we see it stripped back and stripped back. There are, there are still some mysteries, some extra textual references. We have this nice, crunchy specificity of, of, of sea beams and Tannhauser. I mean, if you really want to go deep, Tannhauser was a semi-legendary 13th century German poet knight who, in the story, finds a passage into an enchanted mountain and enters a magical world where he, wor where he worships the goddess Venus. After a year in what's called Venusburg, i.e. the Mountain of Venus, 
very much in line with other European depictions of fairyland or elfland, the realm of the other folk. He emerges and, and, and is consumed with remorse. What has he done? So he goes to Rome to seek absolution from the Pope, Pope Urban IV, saying, ah, no, oh, no, I, I've been in a magic mountain worshipping this pagan goddess. Please, your holiness, how can I be forgiven? And the Pope says, I'm sorry, you can't. There's about as much chance of your being forgiven as there is of my papal staff sprouting blossoms. So Tannhauser slopes off and lo and behold, three days later, the holy staff bursts into flower. So the pontiff sends messengers after the night to tell him about this incredible act of grace. But it's too late. He's already passed back into Venusburg, into the pagan world of the gentry below. So there are a few things that this tiny little phrase, the, the, the Tannhauser Gate, might suggest. I, I guess the, the mundane one, but a perfectly plausible one, is it's just named after a corporation or whatever, Tannhauser Logistics or whatever, which is, you know, is nice and crunchy and fits with a cyberpunk world where everything is branded, but also it like alludes to this international scope. Uh, this is a German name and we hear those alongside Japanese corporations and all sorts of different languages. I mean, we, we hear early on in Blade Runner that people on the streets speak a kind of pidgin dialect that's a mashup of multiple languages. Part of the cultural impetus behind cyberpunk, certainly when it first came out, you know, was a kind of unacknowledged fear of globalism. You know, just as noir is full of barely disguised moral panic stuff about the yellow peril and Italian gangsters and so on, cyberpunk came into full bloom around the zenith of things like the tiger economies in Southeast Asia, you know, Japan and South Korea overtaking traditional American manufacturing industries, but also making huge tech innovations. So you often get Japanese names and characters presented as outsiders invested with this faint menace. And then, of course, Germany had become an industrial powerhouse. So you get German uh, German corporations as well. And then plus, you know, bootleg Soviet military hardware and ex-KGB types with bionic eyes. It's It's very early 80s paranoia. The, the cultural sink, this fear, the fears of overpopulation and urban degradation. Multiculturalism in cyberpunk is usually part of, it's usually presented as part of a confusing, alienating urban milieu driven by soulless profit. You know, if characters ever find refuge or escape, they do so in the antithesis. You know, they go to a cabin in the woods, bucolic simplicity. Uh, cyberpunk is not explicitly fascist, but it does happen to share tropes and ideological leanings and anxieties with all this back to the land. We're being controlled by shadowy, stateless, cosmopolitan financiers, parts of fascist dogma. Sorry, that was a, a little bit of a side note, but I, I, again, I just find this stuff really interesting, right? The Tannhauser Gate might also have got its name because... It might be built next to Venus, right? I don't know if, if like it's a docking station or some kind of jump gate, maybe that blinkers use for travel between systems. This is probably all explained to death in a bunch of expanded universe stuff, by the way. Given the film's popularity, I expect just like Star Wars, Gundark's every single ambiguity 
and tantalising hint has been nailed to the floor, measured and catalogued and given a little index card explaining it to death. But I'm treating this as a self-contained text because that's usually how we want to write. So, So maybe... The Tannhauser Gate could be where you dock at Venus or where you leave. It's a superstructure orbiting the planet. That's what my mind leaps to create, unbidden. I might be completely wrong, but it actually doesn't matter for the purposes of this movie because nothing turns on our understanding the specifics of what the Tannhauser Gate is. You know, it's Chekhov's Gundark. You don't have to know whether a Gundark is some kind of mammoth or a, a vicious ape or even if it's some kind of monstrous woodlouse and Han is making a joke because it doesn't have any obvious external ears and it's kind of a, a common absurd expression amongst spacefarers. You know, crumbs, you look strong enough to pull the ears off a woodlouse. Please don't write in explain to me the canonical physiology of actual Gundarks. I, I, I know I've seen pictures and thank you but I really don't care. Same with the Tannhauser Gate. I honestly don't want to know, and, and this isn't about getting it quote-unquote right. I, I, I'm actually, I actually quite enjoy my ignorance in this. And, and maybe that's why often movies that are prequels to something can feel a little bit of a letdown, because there's actually quite a lot of joy about wallowing in the epistemological lacunae that stories leave us where we imagine what could be happening in the world i don't want someone else to go and play with my lego leave it floating and lovely and a kind of liminal space where i get to tell part of the story finally by using it as a reference batty may be subtly aligning himself with the fallen unredeemed knight poet tannhauser this guy who who found the entrance to fairyland one of the terrifying things about many presentations of the fey in european mythology is how they often apparently exist outside the jurisdiction of heaven and hell they are not saved by christ but neither do they appear to be damned presumably god created them but they seem to operate adjacent to the whole cosmic system they're not humans and so uh, where do they fit that they fit sort of orthogonally to everything in a way that's quite unsettling it's not exactly suggested that god doesn't have dominion over them but god doesn't seem that bothered by them either they, they they're they're the shadowy liminal category of being which fits very much into a story about non-human but humanoid life you know neither saved nor damned neither angel nor devil the recipient of miraculous grace who yet strays from god's light you know tannhauser saw such things in the revels of Venusberg, the realm of the goddess of love, beauty, sexual desire and fertility, these raw embodiments of life. He foregoes heaven for them. And let's not forget this monologue, this death soliloquy, is often referred to as the tears in rain monologue, a line that wasn't in the script and that uh, Rutger Hauer quietly added the night before. We've lost the simile about the match burning brightly, then flaring out the magnesium line it was changed into. And just like Le Guin suggested that 
oral epics like the tale of Roland, you know, limit their similes and metaphors. Here, the only simile is one that emphasises the central thematic thrust of Batty's speech while reflecting the situation he and Deckard find themselves in. They're both slumped on a rooftop, rain pouring down, super noirish. Everything's dark and black and blue and grim. And maybe there's like a, you know, you can see distant neon, but it's all horrible and wet. And in this city that's often shown to be packed, this teeming, cramped hive of humanity, Batty uses this super simple but super effective simile of the specific getting lost in the vastness of existence. And and it's bittersweet, right? Because it's quite a poignant, beautiful image. But also the sadness is getting reabsorbed. It's returning to the collective. So that's a lot packed into 42 words, only nine of which, by the way, are more than one syllable. It's certainly an iconic moment in film. I think if you were going to talk about the top 10 most memorable or iconic moments in science fiction movies, this would have to be in the conversation. No one would laugh you out of the room for bringing it up. It would definitely be a contender. I'm not actually myself a massive fan of Blade Runner. I I, I know that sounds ridiculous after doing all this analysis. I I realise it's been influential and I think some of the aesthetic choices are super cool. But for me, I I don't have a lot of emotional investment in much of the movie. It it might be my least favourite role I've seen Harrison Ford in. I, I just don't feel like he gets to do much except walk around looking a bit grumpy and like he's got a headache which I know is kind of his MO but um, in this it's particularly pronounced now there may be character reasons why that's the case there may be law reasons why that's the case of course a lot of chatter around the movie and, and maybe the sort of biggest hand-wringing question uh, outside the film that can't be answered with any cut of the film definitively is it is Deckard actually unknowingly a replicant himself maybe I don't actually think it's a thematically that interesting a question the point is do him and Roy Batty have mutual humanity and their status is completely irrelevant to that in fact it almost slightly cheapens it if he is uh Certainly, certainly, it would cheapen his decision if he knew he were a replicant. I think, probably, possibly, don't know. Um, I, I, but I think it's, it's sort of, it's kind of by the by. If if it were a gotcha, I, I don't know what we would learn from that. But you know, I, I think that's fine. That I, that I don't particularly. I mean, this is nice enough it was it's all right to watch but you know we all like different things um it just never connected with me in more than a service level oh that's technically interesting and quite slick way and i i'm not suggesting oh i don't mean to imply that a lot of you know the these technical nuances that i talked about the world building lore and the literary illusions you know were all necessarily on the writers and actors minds when they wrote this you know i doubt very much they were laboriously checking syllable counts, etc. But some of it might have been. I think if, if you read lines over and over, you you certainly... I, I think things like this, I'm articulating them, I'm making them explicit, I'm lifting them up so you can see them. 
So hopefully you can then practice them, but then they become automated and control of that kind of gets downstreamed in your writing brain and you cut and tweak sentences just because they don't feel right in a way you might not be able to fully articulate. You know, they just clunk to you, right? I, I think that the changes that were made are also an object lesson in how, uh, as well as individual words, we also have to consider the ecosystem each individual word exists in. You know, what's around them? What's the balance like? Are your sentences becoming like Chinese communist show fields packed with so much rice per square inch that you choke out your plants and, and kill them all off and get nothing? You know, do you have clarity on what you want to say? Because if you do, and it's not easy... I rarely have clarity on what I want to say and, and often I have to do a first draft and come back to be able to find that. But if you do have clarity, you should be able to simplify the language, flints off unnecessary blubber and present something that is sharper but doesn't lose semantic fidelity. Finally, I, I do think it's quite heartening to see that there was a drafting process for this tiny, tiny bit of a massive film. First, no speech at all just 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 him getting shot which is you know quite seems quite funny to me then you know then there were the bare bones there were the there, well not even the bare bones then there was multiple animals stitched together of this death scene too much stuff and uh, loads and loads of bits filled in that didn't really leave any room for emotion I should say, I think if Rutger Hauer had been forced to deliver that early version, he would have done a perfectly good job. You know, actors find ways to elevate a text and and sell it and work within it. But it, it doesn't leave much space for the words to breathe. It doesn't leave much space for implication. Like, it, I could write a death monologue that's a little bit crap, like that first version. I feel confident that I could do one that was kind of you know fine it was workmanlike you know that is within my capabilities as an author I bet you could too and I think that's quite that's quite that makes me feel a little bit optimistic and a little bit better about myself I could probably do that it you know it wasn't that good I could I could probably you know some of the stuff I get submitted on this show is is about that level right and and those aren't final drafts because I get to then work on them right so so we can do this we can write at this level, but to punch up the writing until you get something which has been called, quote, perhaps the most moving death soliloquy in cinematic history, end quote. That takes some time, right? It takes some thought and a little bit of redrafting and a little bit of feedback from people outside, from people other than the writer. You know, someone else, uh, you know, Rutger Hauer comes in and he reads it and he reads it and he gets to feel how it sounds when he has to say the lines and he's not happy with them and he goes and rewrites it i mean i i i'm glad it's quite funny to me thinking of alternate worlds in which he changed it in a different way because he does seem a little bit of a live wire in some of the movies and i realize he is acting but there's a kind of consistency across a lot of them that <laughs> that make me just I'm I'm glad that he showed remarkable restraint in how he edited it. You know, when when you have a line like I've seen things you can't imagine. <laughs> there's lot there's lots of ways that could go uh, the the kind of stories that somebody who's essentially been in the 
Space Merchant Navy. I, I've seen things you people couldn't imagine. Like this, this guy who could fit an entire magnum of champagne up his... Anyway, it's just... I, I, I was surprised at how at the restraint, and I think that comes from being someone who's going to have to actually say the words out loud um, and, and invest them with some kind of emotional resonance. And, and like those... But this idea of editing something, of looking at a piece of text and finding ways to make it better, you know, finding time, a little bit of thought and some editing chops... Those are absolutely within your locus of competence. We're not talking about rarefied skills that you can't develop or that take some kind of bizarre mutant birthright that only the chosen few had. You can listen to this show. You can listen to a few of the episodes where I edit someone's first page. And it's fairly, you know, it's fairly basic stuff that you can pick up and abstract and automate and then you'll be able to do this right so you you can write a crap first draft and you can make a crap first draft better having written the story and knowing what you want to refine it towards because this felt like it had two things there was a kind of idea he was there in the rain and his memories were slipping away and there was the metaphor of the match burning brightly and then fizzling out but they were also in the wet and he went for the tears in rain and got rid of the match metaphor and thinned it down to one thing and that was really disciplined and a really really good choice um but look but when we take it like this can you write something a bit crap as was done here and then can you incrementally make it better with a couple of revisions and some outside help yeah you can like we're no longer looking at a huge leap there but rather a journey across a series of perfectly navigable stepping stones And I I think that's rather nice to remember. Right, that's it for this episode. I do hope you enjoyed this dive so deep that you will have to spend hours in a decompression chamber to avert nitrogen poisoning. Please don't let my affinity for meticulous detail paralyse you. Remember, you're not expected to do all of this during your first draft. You don't have to catch problems before you make them. In fact, by doing that, you'll just tie yourself into a pretzel of anxiety. It can be really tough at times. I know how that can feel, but just hold off from tinkering and fiddling till you have a full manuscript ready. Then you can go back and do these successive winnowing down passes, like reducing a marinara sauce on the hob, making your prose thicker and richer by boiling off excess metaphors and insipid watery subclauses. Do you want to connect with a community who like writing, who like stories, who listen to this very show? Well, if you look in the show notes, that's the bit of text under in the box underneath whatever player you're using to play this podcast. There's a link right there to the Death of a Thousand Cuts Discord community where you can do just that. Discord is a little chat app you can download and, and then we have some little basic forums where you can chat about books and writing and share work if you want to and just vibe with other listeners yeah sorry Uh, so either click the link under today's episode or search for death of a thousand cuts discord specifically on google don't search for it on bing the number of movies i've watched recently where there's very obvious bing product placement where someone has to search a character has to search for something online 
and we see a long a shot of them going onto the Bing homepage. I'm just like I could believe every other part of this movie. I can the the time travel element I'm totally on board with, but using Bing in an emergency situation to search for something get lost right if you like the show and you want to support me there are two material ways you can do that first of all buy one or more of my books i have my novels the honors and the ice house which are cool gothic fantasy i think you'll love them and then I have my latest book coward why we get anxious and what we can do about it which is a non-fiction book about anxiety and it has a bit about me as well um my job is being a writer making books and helping other people write is what i love so if you want to invest in one of my books or multiple books and maybe buy one as a present for someone else you are materially helping me continue my live stream thank you so so much to everyone who has taken the time after an episode to click a link or go online and buy one of my books it's literally life-changing for me that's not some clergy exaggeration it you know it allows me to do this thing that brings me so much meaning and joy so thank you i appreciate it and do get in touch if you've read something i wrote let me know what you think i'd love to hear from you secondly um you can go to my coffee page that's ko-fi.com forward slash tim Clare and drop me a few beans to help me keep the lights on and cover hosting costs etc there's a link in the show notes for that all right that's it i'm done next week i'm off to essen spiel the biggest tabletop game show in the world in germany if you're gonna be there i'm sure there's at least one listener who might be um did drop me a line i'd love to see you um hopefully i'm gonna see and play some games and uh i'm also going there as a research for my latest book no idea what it's gonna be like uh, might be a massive waste of time might be fine but a little dull in places might be really 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 engaging and interesting but i just think sometimes you've got to go for it right and i'm going to do my best in any case thank you for sticking around till the end i really enjoyed making this episode take care and above all else i hope you have a wonderful week of writing <laughs>